Welcome once again to everyone in our main sanctuary and our overflow room. It's awesome to worship together and soak in God's presence, be encouraged by His Spirit. Last couple Sundays I've noticed we've had certain interludes where the worship team sort of backs off and our voices take over and it's just so powerful to hear uh, our worship together as, as a fellowship. Most importantly, I believe it brings delight to the heart of God, and that's why we come, right, is to bring praises unto the Lord, because no one else will. And as we have read in the Passion Week account, if the multitudes would not cry out, then the rocks would cry out. So we have a ministry with the rocks to give praises uh, to Jesus. Okay, turn with me to Matthew 24. We're going to be talking about the last days and Jesus' return. And as we do that, I'm going to open us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, for those of us that are feeling like we are struggling, as Pastor John mentioned, we pray for a spirit of encouragement to come in Jesus' name. For the warfare, Father God, that's coming on any of us in Jesus' name, I break the power of that warfare, the discouragement, the heaviness, the weariness, the lack of hope. Be gone in Jesus' name. And Holy Spirit, would you release comfort and encouragement. When we look into the word, may you just quicken it as rhema and fresh manna to our hearts so that we know that you are a personal God. You're a God that sends dolphins when we need it. You're a God that sings the right verse when we need to sing it. And we thank you, God, this morning for your eternal word because it always speaks to our heart. Holy Spirit, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. How many know that we're living in stressful times? Economically, politically, socially, there's so much turmoil in the world. From Brexit to Me Too to climate change, trade wars, immigration crisis, so much is happening so fast. Everyone is trying to keep up. It's a kind of breathless way of living. We're all trying to find purpose and meaning and balance. And yet it's not easy to do in the midst of all this chaos. The prophet Daniel said in the last days that it would be marked by people going to and fro, as in travel, and there would be an increase of knowledge. Those words were so precise and so accurate as to the times that we're living in. We have so much coming at us. There's so much information that we're in overload. We're sensory overload and experience overload. And never has the world been so exposed to itself as it is now, everyone is traveling everywhere, whether it's for business or for pleasure. We're truly becoming a global tribe. We're becoming more connected by the minute, whether it's through social media or the internet. Things can go viral and blow up globally overnight. It's just crazy. And yet all of this is part of what the Bible calls the last day. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 21, this is the companion chapter to Matthew 24. Jesus said, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that the day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. I don't care if you're somewhere off in some isolated place or you're in the middle of New York City. 
this dissipation and this weariness comes on every single person. Now remember, Jesus prophesied this 2,000 years ago. And how accurate is this prophecy? To diagnose the spirit of the age and the environment and the atmosphere that we're living in. It's amazing how perceptive and how clear Jesus got this correctly. As I mentioned last week, when we talk about Jesus in this last week of his life, remember chapters 21 to 28, they chronologue just Jesus' last seven days. And it's easy for us to think of him as Jesus the Lamb, Jesus the Savior, Jesus as the conquering victor, and we should because he is all those things. But it's easy to forget that this last course that he gave to us is where he was full-on prophetic. I showed this um, chart last week in terms of the actual material that's given to us in these last seven chapters. Here's chapter 21 going up to 28, and these are all the verses. And what I want us to see is that the biggest box in terms of Jesus' teaching is all here between chapter 21 and 26. And this all occurred on Tuesday of the last day of his life. We're going to go into, of course, Passover Thursday, and then we have Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday in the coming weeks. But as we're looking at the scripture, it's helpful to keep in mind that everything Jesus said actually occurred on what I call Intense Tuesday. It represents the bulk and the final messages of what Jesus said before he went to the cross and died. And everything that the Lord did on this Tuesday represented the prophetic office that he stood in. As we saw last week in living color, his fierce confrontation of the Pharisees and scribes. After the service, my daughter said, man, dad, you were yelling the whole time. I said, I wasn't yelling. I was passionate. But the text demanded, right? The text demands a certain kind of fierceness. It demands a certain kind of emotion because this is how Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He called them hypocrites. He called them blind guides. He called them a brood of vipers. He saved his choicest words of condemnation for them because they were leading the nation down a wrong path and leading them away from the kingdom of heaven rather than to the kingdom of heaven. And even if they did lead them to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, you're making them a child even more of hell. To be a prophet in Israel was the highest spiritual status you could have. Now, being a rabbi was a very honored position. But to be a prophet, no higher designation. Israel, the nation, if nothing, is a history of prophets. From Abraham to Moses and Elijah and the major prophets and the 12 minor prophets. And you're going to learn more about this as you go through your Bible literacy. And as we began our study of Matthew last fall, who was the one that broke the 400 years of silence after the book of Malachi. John the Baptist, another prophet. So despite these towering prophetic figures, there was never one like Jesus. He was and is the prophet of prophets. And we see this more clearly than ever when we look at chapter 24, which is our focus this morning. And while conspiracy is brewing in the background, and Jesus' life is on the line, he still has the presence of mind and composure to prophesy what the last days will be like. So in in verse 
verses 1 and 3 through 3 of 24, we read this from the disciples. And I have to sort of chuckle at it because I kind of see it as a tourist moment that they were having, which they then combined with this huge question. So as Jesus came out from the temple and was going away, when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they sense, okay, something's up. He told us before we entered Jerusalem that his life was going to be taken. We don't want you to go. In the Gospel of John, it, it records for us the sadness of the disciples. And the Apostle John records all the words of comfort that Jesus spoke to them. And so there's this collective sadness in the apostles. And they're like, Jesus, when are you to come back? And, and when you come back, we're going to be the signs. And Jesus opens his mouth and begins to prophesy. And I want us to just pause for a moment and realize what Jesus was saying. This was not teaching. This was not exposition of the Torah. This was pure prophetic revelation. And it's easy for us to just read this and take for granted what Jesus said back then. But remember 2,000 years ago when the Lord uttered these words, it would have been hard to imagine the deadly accuracy with which he spoke. If you were told to share with the world, what will the next 2,000 years look like? What would you say? Hey, I invite anyone to come up and tell us what the next 2,000 years will look like. That's a heavy responsibility. And that gives you a better feel for the magnitude of what Jesus said. His prophetic vision was astounding. And so Jesus goes on to prophesy. And he says, here's what's going to happen in the intervening years between when I'm gone and when I return. And the signs that, these will be the signs that will signal when I'm really close to coming back. Now, purely from logic's sake, if Jesus said I'm coming back soon, and we're not 2,000 years later, you think we're closer to his actual return? You bet we are. Now, there's three movements in which Jesus describes the last days. I'm putting up just the outline. The first movement is what Jesus calls the birth pangs. This is recorded for us in verses 5 through 8. This is where the Lord says to be careful for false Christs and false saviors. Many will come in his name and pretend to be the Christ and try to mislead people. There's a, a deception that comes on the world. Many people wanting to take the place of Jesus. They want to be famous like him. And the Lord says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there's going to be famines and earthquakes. I mean, basically, every time you open up the newspaper or you look on the internet, it's a constant affirmation of what Jesus said. We have famines and disasters and earthquakes going on all the time. We're almost become numb to it. The tsunamis and the typhoons and the hurricanes and all the people that are stricken with disease on different continents, whole nations coming under scourges. Jesus prophesied this to us. This whole theme of wars and rumors of wars and nations rising against nation and all the dislocation and the displacement that it brings. Part of the 
the trauma of Brexit right now goes back to the discussion on how do we handle displaced immigrants. The European Union has the authority to tell any country in the Union, you should take in this many people, you should take in that many people. And so countries are getting upset that they have lost their sovereignty. They have lost their own voice to dictate who can come in and who can leave. And on top of it, the social burden that it creates when these immigrants come in. Since 2011, there have been one million Syrian immigrants that have sought asylum in Europe. Where did this all come from? Ethnic difficulties, wars. We just saw a little picture there, a little clip of Kevin and Julia ministering in internment camps because these people are removed from their homeland because of the wars and the kingdoms that are going on. What Jesus prophesied to us, he said, this is what's going to happen. But in verse 6, it says, but don't be frightened because this has to take place and this is not yet the end. So this is just the beginning of birth pains. By the way, this is part of God's overall sovereign strategy to open up the hearts of men. There is nothing that gets our attention more when we are physically distressed. There is nothing that makes us look to God more when something goes wrong with our comfort level. It's not God being mean. It's not God being like capricious saying, okay, that nation's going to suffer this and that nation's going to suffer that. It's God's love that's allowing these things so that people's hearts will open up to him. That's why when the Israelites went into the promised land, God said, when you get to the land of milk and honey and you settle into all the blessings that I have, don't forget me because you'll be so comfortable, you'll just become immersed in your own little world and you'll forget the giver. And so while we in North America, Canada, United States, we are living in unparalleled blessing. There are no nations in the history of the world that is living in such comfort as bless, in blessing as us. But in the midst of it, are we going to give glory to God? Or are we going to continue to go our own way? Are we going to exert our own sovereignty as people? Part of the darkness and the stress that's coming on the earth is man exerting his own agenda. I'll give you one example. I just read the B.C. Supreme Court ruled it's illegal for a dad to stop his child from getting new gendering treatments. So the dad said, my child, okay, they may want to get a new gender or re-identify themselves, but they're too young to make this big decision, so let's wait a few years. The BC Supreme Court said, you don't have the right to do that. Okay, number one, who really rules over your kids? Number two, does a parent not understand the heart of a child? And number three, this whole thing that I can self-identify whatever I want, that, if you stretch that out and extrapolate it, is more brutal to civilization and the fabric society than anything that we've ever seen. I'd rather there be polio scourge than all of a sudden we just open the doors to you designate yourself. So our blessing has turned us into a place well, we just do what we want to do. It's part of the darkness of the last days. Second part that Jesus brings us into, verse 9. It says, then, as in after the birth pangs, then 
they will deliver you to tribulation. The word tribulation means cause of great trouble, suffering, worry, and anxiety. And Jesus gives us some of the characteristics during the season of tribulation. There's going to be intense hatred against Christians. What I just said about identifying yourself, yeah, I get a lot of persecution for that. I hate you for that. You're not being very open-hearted. You're being discriminatory. You're not being inclusive. We start standing for truth, and it's not like we're going to go out in the corner and start preaching. We're just trying to be faithful, diligent Christians. And in the midst of that, the culture will come against us. And it says that the hatred against Christians will be so intense that you will be killed and you will be hated. Of course, over the balance of history, as in from the time that Jesus died to now, we've seen many Christians become martyred. We've seen many Christians become marginalized. We have many brothers and sisters that are without name that are heroes in heaven. Jesus said there's going to be an apostate company that will rise up. Those that will fall away from the faith. And they will deliver up one another and hate one another. Lawlessness will be on the rise. Rebellion, lack of respect for the law, open hostility. Hearts will harden because of it. People will have no desire to show compassion or to be neighborly or to be kind. Instead, we just become cynical. We become jaded. This is all part of the tribulation season. And the temptation when to see all these things is sort of just give up. Have a fainting spirit. But Jesus said that the one who will endure to the end will be saved. And part of the darkness is that it will be met with great light. Because verse 14, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. So as much as you might have heard people predicting when the end will come, one key marker, one key milestone is the end will not come until the gospel has been preached to all nations. I had a, a friend who was a manager at Coca-Cola. And one of their great claims was that Coca-Cola has been placed in every nation of the world. More than the gospel. More than the gospel. So we got to compete with Coca-Cola. At that time, there was 204 nations of the world and there was a Coke dispenser in every single one of those places. We've got work to do as a church to get the gospel. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting close. The founder of YWAM has been to every country in the world. Has a stamp of every single country. We're getting close. And by the fact that we're getting close means Jesus is also getting close in terms of his return. So then in verse 15, Jesus says, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation, what's this phrase? This is a, a very sort of code phrase in terms of the Bible. And Jesus is moving into a section in which he's talking about some of the final signs that will occur just before he comes. The abomination of desolation is a phrase that's given to us in the book of Daniel. Daniel was an amazing prophet, amazing man of excellence. And in one of the last visions that God gave him, 
the Lord showed him that there would be a desolation of the temple in Israel. If you physically travel to Jerusalem today, you can go to the city of Israel, you can go to this mounded area called the Temple Mount, and you can see the remains of what was Solomon's temple. That temple represented the height of Jewish culture, and in particular, their central spiritual relationship with God. And within that building, there was the holy place and there was the holy of holies, in which the high priest could only go in once a year to make atonement for the people, but that's where the Shekinah glory would come down and God would meet and speak. And so in the vision that Daniel had, God said, there is going to come a judgment on your people, Daniel, and there's going to come a desecration that will come upon your temple, Daniel, to the point that the Holy of Holies will be demolished and an idol will be set up where there is supposed to be a sacrifice. That's the abomination of desolation. Now it turns out in history there's a foreshadow. In 168 BC, 168 years before Jesus came, there was a king called Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek king. He came and he pillaged Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, and he put a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Idol worship. So when Jesus is talking about this, he's saying, before I come, there is going to be this complete blasphemy that will occur in Jerusalem called abomination of desolation. And in that season, it's going to be the greatest pressure that the human race has ever experienced. In verse 21, it says, For then there will be a great tribulation such has not since occurred from the beginning of the world or until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be kept short. So there's going to be this massive pressure that will come on the earth. There's going to be more deception. Jesus talks about more false Christs and more false prophets. As I've given here in, my, in the outline, there's also this parable that Jesus gives us about the fig tree. He says, learn the parable of the fig tree, verses 32 to 35. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth its fruit, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. So what's the fig tree? Jesus says, when you see the fig tree and the leaves come out and it's starting to blossom, that means I'm getting close. Well, he's not talking about the literal fig tree. He's talking about the symbolic fig tree, which is the nation of Israel. So after Jesus died and rose again, and because Israel did not recognize their Messiah, Jesus said, your house will be left desolate to you. As he was entering into Jerusalem, he said, I would have gathered you like a hen and its chicks, but because you have missed your moment of prophetic recognition, your house will be left desolate to you. And in 70 AD, God allowed the Roman Empire to completely raise the temple and to ruin the city of Jerusalem. The fig tree was gone, cut down, uprooted. Over those 2,000 years, nothing, 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 nothing. Then, in 1948, so 1,948 years later, during World War II, 
through a declaration of the nations that were involved, Israel was declared a sovereign nation. The fig tree came back. Last year, Mimi and I were in Israel on May 14th, the 70th anniversary of that country. The fig tree is back. That means Jesus' return is soon. This is why theologians have said Israel is God's timepiece. If you want to know what God's time clock is, study Israel. Keep an eye on Israel. Pray for Israel. Because that's how God marks off human history. And so Jesus is telling us, okay, I'm going to give you signs of when I'm going to return. The fig tree. Abomination of desolation. Now, the abomination of desolation hasn't happened. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit more in our next series from 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, but we're going to talk about the Antichrist. And one of the explicit agenda items of the Antichrist is to desolate the temple, to stop the sacrifices, and exalt himself as the idol, and to create a hero worship of him. That's going to occur in Jerusalem. All these things are going to unfold for us, and it's going to seem very natural. Maybe there's going to be economic collapse. We need someone to come and save us economically. All these different things. It's going to unfold in a very natural way, but we have to keep our spiritual eyes open to its significance. Jesus also tells us one of the signs of the last days is going to be characterized by the days of Noah. So in verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. In those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Wow, what a commentary on just our society, just the love of eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage. Now, of course, God is the one that instituted and created marriage. So Jesus is not talking or denigrating marriage but he's saying there is such a hope that people put in marriage as a source of happiness that they're going to be pell-mell everywhere trying to get married. In the days of Noah, as he was building the ark and people were ridiculing for building this ark, you go to church? You go to Bible study? You give to the church? Eating, drinking, Marrying and giving in marriage, we can go on and talk about reality TV shows. We could talk about marriage services. It just goes on and on and on. It's a sign of the times. It's baked into our culture. We see it. If our eyes are to be open, then let's see these things that Jesus has said to us. In Luke chapter 21, which is, a, like I mentioned earlier, the companion passage to this, the writer there talks about the days of Lot. You can flip there if you want, or I'll just read this to you. In Luke chapter 21, Luke records that the last days will not only be marked by the days of Noah, but also it will be the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking, and then get this, they were buying and they were selling. They were planting and they were building. That does, I mean, that just describes us. We love to eat. We love to drink. We love to buy. We love to sell. We love to plant. We love to build. Again, nothing is wrong in and of themselves. But it's the idolatry. It's the affection that we invest into these things. 
We want to get rich. We want to get wealthy. We want to chase after everything but the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day. Just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetops and whose goods are in the field must not go to take them out. Like, oh my gosh, Jesus is returning. I got to go home and get my sewing machine. I got to go home and get my laptop. I got to go home and get my watch. I got to go home and get my shoes or my... No, don't do that. Don't return to your worldly possessions lest it reflect where your heart really is. Because the Bible says that as Lot's wife was leaving with Lot, what did she do? She turned around. Now, it wasn't just like, are we sure we're in the right place? No, that represented her heart condition. She was longing for the things of the world, not longing for the promise that God was bringing. So where is your heart? Because it says there in Luke chapter 21, three words, remember Lot's wife because she was turned into a pillar of salt. Lot represented loving the world more than loving God. Lot's wife represented looking back and taking your hand off the plow. The other thing that the Luke passage talks about is how we become lovers of self more than lovers of God. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. This week, I literally heard a story of two very, very wealthy men. I'm going to turn it into a parable so that I obscure their identities, but the facts of it are true. So one man makes $100,000. Another man makes $50,000 a month. God comes to each of them, says to the man who makes $100,000 a month, what would you do with your money? The man thinks about it, and he says, I'm going to give away 11 months of my salary. I'm going to only live on one. He goes to the man that makes $50,000 and says, what are you going to do with your money? The man says, I'm going to spend it all on myself, every single dollar. I'm not going to do anything for you. It's all for me. That's a picture of the obsessive affections that we have. Are we going to spend it on ourselves? Or are we going to spend it on our, on our God? Luke 17, 30. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Again, I'm not saying that all of you just go empty your bank account. Although God might say that to you. It's a heart issue. Do you really know whether your possessions have control over you or if you have control over your possessions? The only way you will know is if the Spirit of God actually tests you and says, give it up. That's the only way you truly know. You could say, yeah, yeah, I could do it. Why does... God, give us these kinds of verses. Why does he have to be so hard on us? Because our soul is at stake. Our eternity is at stake. We can think about our yachts and our boats and our vacations and our retirement accounts and how wonderful it's going to be for our 70 or 80 years. But what happens after that? God wants to secure your entire eternity. Only Jesus has the love to present the truth to us in this way.
These are the things that, that mark the last days. I think we can confidently say we're living in them. Now, there are some of you that have read end-time literature, end-time novels. talks about people all of a sudden disappearing. In verse 40, it says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Whoosh. One's gone. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. What's that all about? Generally speaking, it's called the rapture. The rapture is where the church is taken up to meet Jesus when he returns. Those who are Christians get to go to be with Jesus. Those who don't know Jesus will not get to meet him. So, okay, I'm working at the mill, cutting down my lumber. All of a sudden, whoa, where is Hank? Hank! Or two women are grinding at the mill. They're putting out flour. All of a sudden, one woman's gone. This will be a reality. Now, you might say, okay, this, this is hard to wrap our heads around. Think about the fact that Jesus actually was born, that he actually came of a, of a virgin woman, that he actually came into this world, and then he says he's going to come in again in the same way that it was miraculous that Jesus came the first time, so it's going to be the second time. And so as we see these signs, the Lord tells us what it is that we're to do. The first is that we're not to be caught off guard by the thief. So in 24, verses 42 through 44, Jesus says, Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, if the head of the household had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Has, has any of you been, had your house broken into? When I was a graduate student, I had my house broken into. My roommate and I, a terrible feeling. You walk into the house. First of all, you go, wait a minute, how come the door's open? You walk in. Whole place is ransacked. Lamps are down. Clothes are thrown out. Everything is strewn all over the house. And you just feel sick to your stomach. And for us, it was doubly insulting because when we went into the kitchen, we found out that our intruders decided to make a meal for themselves. Ate all our fruit through the banana peels on the ground. Had boxes of cereal that were just opened. And they even went to the bathroom and relieved themselves. It was so humiliating. Who wants a thief to break in? Now, why is Jesus then using this picture of a thief? Because he says, if you're the head of the household and you knew when the thief would come, you'd, of course, stay awake and you would prevent it from happening. So we can't be like those people who are spiritually asleep and all of a sudden when Jesus comes, we are caught unaware. It's like, wait a minute, I, I need to have a makeup test. I'm sorry. You knew the deadline. You knew when you're supposed to get your paper in. You knew when the test date was. This is when it is. And so we can't be caught off guard like a thief breaking into a home. And then Jesus says at the end of the chapter that it's so crucial for us to be faithful and sensible servants. It says the master, when he leaves, puts his household in charge of those who know how to give them food at the proper time. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. It's so easy to get slack. You know, the saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. 
and we lose our sense of accountability, we lose our sense of urgency, we lose our sense of righteousness. And yet God says, I might be delaying, but you need to still be faithful. You need to continue to walk into your call. For the sake of time, let me just, um, let me just <clears throat> wrap it up here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. This is when Jesus returns. And when he does, it's over. The end of the age has come. And Jesus' reign begins. Judgment day will be here. He will separate the goats from the sheep. Chapter 25, which Pastor John might look at next week. The final destination of every person will be decided. And the kingdom of heaven will be consummated. So for many people, the last days and the idea of Jesus coming back stirs up feelings of anxiety and fear and worry. And indeed, these are aspects of Jesus' coming, which is meant to stir us to concern and life-changing choices. You know, for some, their attitude towards Jesus coming again is, is really one of skepticism. Oh yeah, we've heard that before. You know, people who have proclaimed when Jesus is coming back. We know those weirdos that said on such and such a date, Jesus will come back. But the Lord tells us right here, no one knows, not even angels, not even the Son, only the Father. So anyone who predicts when Jesus is going to return is a false prophet. But those people who are skeptical, who says, we don't need to take it seriously, doesn't have any bearing on my life, the prospect of an actual return of Jesus seems more like a tall tale than a future certainty. The Apostle Peter spoke to us and says, Don't you realize that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. God is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So if there's a reason why God is delaying, it's so that we have more time for mercy. We have more time to consider Jesus. We have more time to give our lives to him. He wants to come back. He can't wait to take us home. He says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms that I have prepared for you. I can't even fathom what our homes are going to be like, what our rooms are going to be like. I've asked that my room be next to Mimi's. I think we'll be together. Then there are those who, when they think about The return of Christ, they're not so much skeptical, but they're just plain scared. Is there going to be an actual judgment day? Is there going to be a final reckoning? Will he find me in my sin? Will I get to do what I've wanted to do before he comes? Will I get to be married? Will I get to have kids? Will I have grandkids? Do I get to go on my dream vacation or make my million dollars? The fear is about an interruption to our plans. Oh, Jesus, don't come and interrupt me until all my plans are finished. As much as I love my family, as much as I love this church, 
I can't wait for the Lord to return. He can come back anytime. Lord Jesus, bring it on. If we're not here next Sunday, hopefully we're all in heaven celebrating Jesus together. Right? That's a hallelujah moment. The Apostle John said, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. God doesn't want us to be covered with shame or guilt. He wants us to have confidence. And if you're in him, you're a covenant child. There's no condemnation on you. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are in Him, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Neither heights, nor depths, nor principalities, nor powers. You are His. Forever and ever, you will be with Him. Well, there's a third group, last group I'll mention here, those who are excited about His return. Apostle Paul says, In the future, there's laid up for us the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will, will re- award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all those who loved his appearing. Which group we belong to depends on our lifestyle, our attitudes, where we're at with God. It's a time for reflection. It's a time to do a self-audit, but it's also a time to rejoice because our redemption draweth nigh. Father, we look to you right now. We're reminded afresh, God, we are stirred in our souls that as sobering as it is to think about you coming again, it's a good sobering. It's like smelling salts that just wake us up and say, where am I? You're okay. You're in good hands. Today, God, I thank you for each person that was in our service today, that they could hear about the future reality, and the future hope of you coming again. That all this world, all that this world has become, it's going to go away because there's going to be a new heaven, there's going to be a new earth, there's going to be a new eternity. Every tear will be wiped away. You're going to provide a comfort beyond comfort and a redemption, Lord, that we long for. But we have to have our faith in you. So this morning, if there's anyone that is unsure about their faith in Jesus Christ, but you know you want to be sure, I encourage you to come and see myself and John after the service so that we can pray with you. God, we give you glory. We thank you, God, for your soon return. We see, God, that the signs are near. And so, God, we want to be ready and be uh, just prepared in our spirits, God, for that glorious moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.